Not a single hot drink. It was such a ripoff. He seems like he might just not be a good detective. The unerring digestive system doesn't lie. Playing life like a game without consequence until you can't tell the difference between a stage prop and a real knife. Uh, let's do this again sometime. Let's do this again. We should start a podcast. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hey everyone, this is Unreliable Narrators, a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Glomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapel. And in this episode, we'll be discussing Ryan Johnson's 2019 murder mystery film, Knives Out. It's actually weird to be discussing this one because I remember when you first were making like fake in just a uh, test intros for the podcast before we ever started it. Your test intro was saying we're going to be discussing Ryan Johnson's the uh, 2019 film Knives Out. I did that cuz I knew you loved Knives Out, so I was like, she'll like this. <laughs> she'll want to do it. <laughs> if we talk about doing Knives Out. I do I do love Knives Out. Um, I'm very excited to be talking about it. Uh, my understanding is that you don't love it quite as much as I do. I didn't, true? I, I didn't like Ryan Johnson, maybe because I really didn't like what he did with The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. And here's my thing with The Last Jedi, and I'm going to get, I don't know, <laughs> probably this is a very divisive movie. Yeah. But my problem with The Last Jedi is that it was uh, subverting one's expectations pretty much for the sake of subverting them. It was surprise for the sake of surprise. Mm-hmm. So it's like there was no anticipation. There was no setup for it. It was like the whole point was like, this is what you're expecting. And boom, this is we're going to give you the opposite of that. Right. Um, and so that if that is really your whole goal, then it's interesting the first time, but it's not interesting the second time. Sure. Uh, because the context is entirely defined by uh, certain narrative tropes. And it seemed that all he was interested in doing was just inverting them. And so I was like, okay, this is all that Ryan Johnson's about. And so when I watched Knives Loud, I guess I had a certain prejudice going into it, mm-hmm. knowing that that's kind of Ryan Johnson's thing. But given that this was something that was written and directed by Ryan Johnson, as opposed to taking somebody else's work, like Lucas's work, which definitely, like, that wasn't his intention. Right. And that wasn't his vision for Star Wars. Um, I feel like maybe because it's his own work and he he succeeds more in doing what he wants to do because he's in his own element. Um, and so maybe that it deserves respect for that. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and I, I, I like... I see what he's doing, and I appreciate it more more in Knives Out than I did then. So yeah. maybe I've come around. I've become more rounded out. Or yeah, I've round. I've I've rounded out my knife. My <laughs> knives, I've sheathed my knife. Well, Knives Out is definitely uh, like you were saying. It's a it's a deconstruction of the murder mystery, um, and we'll talk a little bit later more about what the point of that is, whether there is a point or whether it's just for fun. Uh, first of all, I'm going to go through. Uh, kind of a summary of the movie. A uh, quick disclaimer, if you have not watched this movie, it is absolutely worth watching. And also, you're, there's so many spoilers <laughs> in what I'm about to tell you. Um, way better to just go watch the movie. And if you do go watch the movie, you can probably skip everything that I'm about to say. But if you haven't seen it in a while, this might be a good review for you. So, the movie opens with the death of elderly Harlan Thromby, who is a murder mystery author... Um, he's a he's a popular author. He owns his own uh, publishing company, and he dies on the night of his 85th birthday party. Um, so that's where the movie opens. Marta Cabrera, who's the protagonist, we follow her through the whole film. Uh, she was Thromby's nurse. Um, so she's not actually a family member, but she was really close with the family. Uh, she wasn't invited to the funeral but she's still apparently considered one of the family by his relatives, and so she's summoned to the house on the day that everyone who is present at the party is interrogated. And they're all saying, oh, you know, it was a suicide. Uh, The death has been labeled as a suicide, um, and yet still they're all being interrogated, and they're not sure why. So one of the earliest scenes is we have this interrogation scene, which is very typical of the murder mystery genre, um, the interrogation of everyone who is there at the party. So... 
there's a huge cast of characters. Most of them are Harlan's family. Uh, just to go through them to look at their relationship to one another and maybe the different motivations that they have. Harlan has three kids. Um, one of the kids is dead. So there are only two of his children who are there and they're all adults and married and have their own kids. So there's Linda, who's the oldest daughter of Harlan. She is married to Richard. Um, and then they have one son whose name is Ransom and he's like the black sheep of the family. Nobody really likes Ransom. Um, he's kind of the worst among the worst is what they think of him as, or at least at the beginning. We don't see a lot of Ransom until later on in the film. Um, then we have Walt, who is Harlan's youngest son. Um, Walt has a wife whose name is Donna, who doesn't really figure very much into the story. And then they have one son whose name is Jacob. Jacob's a super conservative. I think someone calls him an alt-right troll at one point. Um, he's pretty young. He's maybe like 15. Uh, and then you have Joni. Joni is the widow of the dead son whose name was Neil. Um, but she's still really close with the family and she hangs out with them all the time. And she has one daughter whose name is Meg. Meg is kind of the opposite of Jacob, who's the super conservative kid. Uh, Meg is very liberal and there are lots of jokes that they make about her college degree that she's getting, which is like queer, feminist, gender studies, something like that. And they make jokes about that being a useless degree. Um, Harlan was paying for Meg's college degree and also giving an allowance of money to Joni so that she could run her company. Um, Walt is working for Harlan's publishing company right before he dies. Um, basically, Harlan has been supporting all of his family members with all the money that he makes from writing for a really long time. Uh, the other couple important characters are there is um, Harlan's mother, who's a super, super old uh, grandmother who never speaks, is a little bit out of touch with reality, isn't really super sure what's going on. And then you have Fran, who is the housekeeper. She's not a family member, but she is super important to the story. So big cast of characters, which is, again, pretty, pretty typical for this kind of story. Um, it turns out that the private detective Benoit Blanc is called in to investigate uh, this mystery. Um, Blanc is riffing on Agatha Christie's uh, Hercule Poirot, obviously because he has a, a Belgian or a French sounding name, but then the first time we hear him talk, he has this Southern drawl. Um, so there's the joke of he has the Poirot kind of name, but then also he's very Southern and very down to earth and um, not uh, not very highbrow at all. Yeah, He was played by Daniel Craig, who's British, and people made fun of his accent. And I don't know well enough about Southern accents to say that it was accurate, but I really liked listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's very funny. I think it's a, it's a good choice, especially in a film that's taking kind of normally a murder mystery is sort of a period piece or kind of supposed to be timeless. And then we have this character who sounds like he should be a poor old kind of character. And then he's like, hello everyone. <laughs> um, throughout the film, we are constantly questioning as an audience until the end, whether or not Blanc is even a competent detective. Um, Marta, we'll get to this later, but Marta seems like she is able to trick him pretty easily. Um, he, at one point, is talking about the mystery, and he's describing it, and he's trying to describe it like a donut, and he's like, inside the donut, there's a hole, and in that hole, there's another hole. And it, he seems like he might just not be a good detective. Um, we find out that he is a brilliant, he is worth his reputation, but it takes a while for us to get there. I want to take a second to zero in on the first scene where Blanc appears, because it is so good. Um... During the interrogation, there's this one detective who is not Blanc, who is interrogating all the family members, and there's this guy sitting in the background who you don't really notice, but every now and then during the interrogations, he just, blink, hits a note on the piano. And every single time he does that, the detective who's actually doing the questioning kind of shifts a little bit uncomfortably and asks the same question, which is, when did you arrive at the party? And so it's pretty clear, eventually, that this guy in the background is sort of listening and directing the interrogation but passively. He's not really doing anything except hitting the piano. Um, eventually, the family members start questioning who he is and why he's there, and he reveals that he is Benoit Blanc, who's a detective who's been hired uh, to figure out what's going on, but he tells the family not to worry, um, and what he says is, but let me assure you this, my presence will be ornamental. 
you will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. And what was he doing with the piano thing? He's he's signaling the detective to ask the question, which is, when did you arrive at the party? Why does he want him to keep on asking that, though? Uh, because he's interested in when people arrived um, because he wants to put together a timeline, basically. Okay. Uh, the thing that's most important about that scene is that he's passive, right? That he's mm-hmm. listening mostly. He's not even interested in being the one asking yeah. the questions. Um, he's interested in listening to what everybody has to say. And it's around this time that we interrogate Marta and we discover something that's probably very central to the plot, and that is Marta throws up whenever she lies. Right. Yep. Yep. She is incapable of lying without puking, (laughs) which is an interesting character choice um, and becomes, as we'll see, very important. And it's very important, too, because I think right before that time, Harlan says that you know, uh, says something about not being able to distinguish fantasy from reality. Yes. The real from the fake. Yeah. And so that's a central theme to the the whole movie. And right after that, we introduce Marta, who we know that this is going to be a play, a a movie about doubt, about extremely doubtful characters, and it's going to be a whodunit. And right from the beginning, we establish, okay, we know that there is one person whom we can trust. And yep. when I saw that, I thought I identified that's that's obviously like a device right there that he's employing here. He's trying to tell us, trust this person. Right. And we don't have any problem uh, believing that. And there's no plot twist in the end where she ends up being a liar. She is pretty much reli- the one reliable narrator. Right. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, well, Blanc is arguably also an, a reliable narrator. Um but he's also not really a narrator because he mostly just observes the truth. But we'll, we'll talk more about Blanca as a passive observer of the truth later. Um, during the interrogations, uh, Blanc discovers that lots of things happened at the party that give a lot of different motivations, maybe, for killing Harlan. So, Harlan... Everyone has a reason. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Richard is cheating on Linda and Harlan threatened to expose him. He cut off Joni's allowance and he's not going to pay Meg's college tuition because she's been stealing from him. He fires Walt from his publishing company. He has some kind of altercation with Ransom. Basically, we learn two things. We learn that the Thrombies are all the worst, except maybe for Harlan, and that Harlan was giving them their comeuppance right before he died. So everyone has a motivation. Marta throws up when she lies and he decides to trust her because of that. Um, At that point, we get a series of flashbacks that reveal how Harlan died. So on the night of the party, Marta mixed up the medications um, when she was giving Harlan his meds, and she overdosed Harlan with morphine, or she thought she did. Um, She can't find the antidote, leaving Harlan presumably with minutes to live. She's trying to call the ambulance, but he stops her because Marta's mother is an undocumented immigrant, and Harlan wants to save Marta and her family and keep them from being broken up, so he fakes his own death. Well, he doesn't fake his death. He commits suicide. But right before he does that, he tells her how to create an alibi. Um, He's drawing on his experience writing murder mysteries to help her get away with his, you know, quote-unquote murder. Um... So she does all of it. We flash forward back to her interrogation. She does not confess to Blanc. She tells just enough of the truth to get away with not saying what actually happened. And she still throws up afterwards because she still can't handle not. Because it wasn't the whole truth. Yeah. Yep. And and, and, and he was trying to give, he knew that she would throw up. So he he was trying to give her a way out. Yeah. Um, And he thought that that would work. Um, But it turns out that that is actually a lie. Yep. Um, because the unerring uh, digestive system doesn't lie. Yep. Um, and that actually kind of shows some tells you a little bit about Harlem too. I mean, he has an idea of what he thinks is not lying, which is actually, as it turns out, lying. Right. And maybe there is a question of whether, you know, he just wants to be really clever. Yeah. And he's kind of living in his own little fantasy world, like, oh, wouldn't this be a great way to go out? Yeah, right, exactly. It's super cool. Yep. <laughs> he's like, this works for a for a murder mystery writer. Yeah. Um, so the the couple of plot beats after that that bring us to the to the conclusion of the film is that they read the will, or Harlan's will, 
Uh, and the family expects that they're going to be inheriting everything, but Marta ends up being the sole inheritor of everything that Harlan had, including the house. So everyone turns on Marta, except for Ransom, the black sheep of the family who's played by Chris Evans. He helps her escape, manipulates her into confessing to him, and then offers his help, presumably just because he wants to screw over his family. Um, Marta, as she's kind of trying to hide what she did, she receives a blackmail note. She goes to rendezvous with the blackmailer, and instead of finding the blackmailer, she finds a drugged Fran, the housekeeper, who's dying. Um, and she could, at this point, leave Fran there, and the evidence would kind of all be gone, and she could probably get away with it. But instead, she saves Fran. She performs CPR. She calls an ambulance. She confesses to Blanc because she says this has gone too far. People are getting hurt. Even though all of those things are ultimately going to cost her the inheritance of all of Harlan's estate. Because there's this thing called the Slayer Rule, which is if you kill the person and they were leaving everything to you, you can't inherit anything, obviously, because you killed them. Um... So they go back to the mansion, the Thrombies mansion. Marta's about to confess everything, which is going to lose her the inheritance. But then suddenly Blanc uh, takes a look at Harlan's toxicology report and sees that Harlan had barely any morphine in his system at all. And so that leads him to make his final deduction of what happened, which is the final, you know, everything on the bulletin board, everything comes together. He explains everything um, to Marta and Ransom and all the detectives waiting. So this is what happened. Night of the party. Harlan tells Ransom that he's leaving everything to Marta. Ransom's really angry about that, so he switches the medications so that Marta is going to kill Harlan, and then, because of the Slayer rule, she'll become ineligible to receive his inheritance. But actually, it turns out that Marta is a good nurse, and she was able to tell the difference between the two medications just by a slight difference in their viscosity. And so she actually gave him the right medication, and he wouldn't have died. But he jumped it, the gun. But she... She gave her, her him the right one without knowing that she gave him the right one. Right, It exactly. was like an unconscious thing. Yeah. Like, she just kind of felt it out and, like, just gave her the one that uh, was labeled morphine, although it was the right one because M Ransom switched them. Yep. Because out of instinct, like, it just felt like it was the right one. Right. But then she didn't realize that and it, when she found that it was labeled morphine, she's like, oh, oh, my God, I actually poisoned right. him but she was wrong about that yeah um and so the surprising i mean the way a lot of this is very challenging and subversive to the genre is at the beginning we get a, a revelation or what we think is a revelation of who the murderer was we know right. who the murderer was or we think we know who the murderer was at the very beginning and yet the thing keeps on going and it's like and, and there's a great piece of dramatic irony because Blanc recruits Marta because she's trustworthy as his his Watson figure. He acts like, hey, Watson. Yep. And you cut to Marta and you see like the look on her face like, oh, crap. Yep. And she's trying to like d redirect him and help him not discover all the clues and everything. And that's the whole dramatic tension. Yeah. And you think that's what it's going to be about. And there's going to be a plot reveal where we discover and we discover actually there's a plot twist within a plot twist. And it was really Ransom who was the murderer um, the whole time. Right. Exactly. Um, so the the import of all that is that it turns out Harlan actually did kill himself. Ransom tried to kill him. Marta saved him without knowing it. And then Harlan jumped the gun and uh, slit his own throat. And then... Because he wanted to be clever. Because he wanted to be clever. Because he was so... He was an idiot in his cleverness. He wasn't willing to wait. He wasn't willing to just see how things played out. So... Uh, Ransom, when Harlan's death is reported as a suicide, he goes, what? I had this foolproof plan. He's the one who hires Blanc anonymously to expose Marta after the death is reported as a suicide. Um, Fran sees Ransom tampering with the crime scene, and so she was going to, she was going to, uh, tattle on him, basically. And so he had to try to kill Fran, but then Marta saved Fran, which also messed up all his plans. Um... At that point, Marta tells Ransom, so she gets a call from the hospital, and she says, oh, that's great news, oh, thank you so much. And she turns around and she tells Ransom that uh, Fran's okay, that Fran lived, which means that Ransom is going to go to jail. He can't do anything because Fran can implicate him. So he confesses as they record his confession, and she vomits in his face, revealing that she lied, Fran is actually dead, and he didn't need to confess, she tricked him. 
Uh, he's super angry. He grabs a knife from Harlan's collection of knives and he stabs Marta, but it turns out that it was actually a, retra a retractable stage knife. So he fulfills Harlan's earlier prophecy, which is that he, Ransom, doesn't know the difference between a stage prop and a real knife. Um, Blanc, in the end, reveals that he actually knew the whole time that Marta was involved because he had noticed a tiny little spot of blood on her shoe, but he trusted her anyway because he knew she had a kind heart, he knew she was a good nurse. Um, Marta does inherit the house because she didn't kill Harlan, and the Thrombies are left out in the cold, which is really ultimately what they deserve. And that's the the ins and outs of the, tw the, the twisty story that is Knives Out. Um, so clearly the first thing that's important is it's a deconstruction of the murder mystery, right? So you have the very typical elements of a murder mystery, which are there's a detective, there's a big interrogation, there's a huge cast of characters, all those characters have different motivations, which makes all of them suspects, all that is really typical. But then like you were saying, Raymond, early on in the story, you have a revelation of who the murderer is or who we think the murderer is, and then suddenly we think, oh, this is a story where we are sympathetic towards the murderer, and we're actually rooting for the murderer, quote-unquote, to get away. And that's super atypical for a murder mystery. But then we do come around at the end, and we get the real, the typical murder mystery reveal where we find out there actually was a villain, there was an antagonist the whole time, and he is going to go to jail for his crime. So we have the justice of a murderer who does get convicted, plus the sympathy the element of following a, a who we think is the murderer and we're sympathetic towards her. Uh, so my first question for you, Raymond, is um, we've done one other murder mystery on this podcast, which was And Then There Were None, which is the Agatha Christie novel. Um, obviously, huge difference in time between when Christie wrote And Then There Were None and when Knives Out came out in 2019. Uh, how, are, how are these stories different, do you think? I... I actually want to uh, plead the fifth on this question because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you you have an answer here that's going to be better than what I come up with. So, <laughs> uh, well, um, knock the ball back in your court. <laughs> sure, sure. So I think the main thing that's different between the these two stories is that, and then the run-on is also an atypical murder mystery, right? It's also subverting tropes. It doesn't really have a detective who figures everything out. Um, the justice is done to every single character. There are no good people in the story. Um, whereas in Knives Out, there is an interesting kind of moral clarity in the sense that the good characters are essentially good and the bad characters are essentially bad. And uh, it's not a particularly dark view of humanity in the sense that there is no theme of, oh, everyone's just bad, <laughs> everyone's just evil. Um there are good characters and there are bad characters and the bad characters get their comeuppance. Um, so I think that that's... That, the, uh, yeah, yeah, the judge gets away with it in the end. Yeah, yeah. And Ransom doesn't get away with it. <laughs> um, that brings us to the question of why deconstruct the genre, right? So we were talking earlier about how this is deconstruction. You were saying that maybe you don't like maybe he's deconstructions just, that happen just for the sake of deconstruction. So like maybe it's, maybe it's like fireworks and just being glitzy, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so my question is, is this a deconstruction just for the sake of being a deconstruction? Is it just for fun or is there sort of a deeper purpose to deconstructing the murder mystery? It's a very, it's a very complex, uh, story. And like I said, I feel like Ryan Johnson was far more in his element um, in this, in this play, in this, I keep on calling it a play, uh, in this movie than it was in, in Star Wars. So it's, it's, I guess, worth a second watch, watch, and maybe there's, there's more going on there than just, than yeah. just shock value. You I, know. I think the most shallow, the most shallow thought that I have about that is part of the point of a murder mystery is to, to surprise you, right? Like that's, inherently yeah. part of the genre the goal is for you to be surprised and but i think what what is really the mark of a good murder mystery is if it you it surprises you a second time yeah and the reason why and it, it's only going to surprise you a second time if there's anticipation yeah right yeah and that's i think what this this movie does really well mhm mm um the other thing is 
there are a lot of antagonists in this movie. Basically, every single Thromby character who's not Harlan is uh, morally problematic. They're all pretty bad. Um, and most of them aren't even the murderer, right? Ransom's really the only one who kills anyone, and still there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of antagonists who are pretty bad. Um, so I do think this is a murder mystery deconstructed that has a lot of moral gray areas. At the same time as it has a moral clarity, there's also this tension with the fact that, um, it's not just the murderer is bad, everyone else is innocent. Uh, which reminds me a little bit of Murder on the Orient Express. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Are you? Well, a little bit. I haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, Then I won't spoil it for you, (laughs) but that's also a murder mystery that has some moral gray areas. Um, The motivations are complicated and the characters are complicated, so... Well, I thought it was an interesting thing that I picked up somewhere in the middle of the play. Uh, Why do I keep on saying play? (laughs) <laughs> so much like a play, uh, but but Blanc, Blanc out of nowhere starts talking about Gravity's Rainbow, um, and Gravity's Rainbow is a uh, is a novel written by Thomas Pynchon back in the seventies. And can I play that clip real quick? Yeah, go for it. I anticipate the terminus of Gravity's Rainbow. Gravity's Rainbow. It's a novel. Yeah, I know. I haven't read it though. Neither have I. Nobody has. Which is, which is, I laughed, I laughed really hard because I remember everybody as an English major in college talking about Gravity's Rainbow because they wanted to know, well, they wanted to tell it, show everyone that they knew what Gravity's Rainbow was, but of course nobody's read Gravity's Rainbow. <laughs> um, so that was a little bit of a dig. But I like the title. It describes the path of a projectile determined by natural law. Et voilà, my method. I observe the facts without biases of the head or heart. I determine the arc's path, stroll leisurely to its terminus, and the truth falls at my feet. But but Gravity's Rainbow is about this U.S. Army Lieutenant Tyrone Slothrop, who is famous for going on these sexual conquests all over the place. And then this psychological warfare agency called Piscus conducts an investigation where they find that all of Tyrone's sexual conquests appear to precede a V-2 rocket strike uh, precisely in the same place by several days. And so they begin to hypothesize that there is a direct causal relationship between Slothrop's um, sexual conquests and the missile strikes. And part of the whole point of this... uh, uh, of Pynchon, as a postmodern author, was um, a message that there's actually not a correlation. Or is there? Or is there not? And there's no conclusive evidence about that. And that kind of goes part and parcel with the radical doubt that um, is characteristic of postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but there, that I mean, the idea is pareidolia, right? And pareidolia right. is the human tendency to impose patterns on something where there is none. Um, but what was so funny about is, is that Blanc is mentioning Gravity's Rainbow as an analogy to explain why he will always arrive unerringly at the truth. Yeah. Because he hasn't read the book. He doesn't know what it's about. Yeah. Um, but he likes the title, Gravity's Rainbow, which means I'm eventually going to get there unerringly. When, and again, this kind of goes back to how he's wrong all the time. He keeps on making incorrect surmises about things. He never figures. He doesn't figure out that um, that that Marta is uh, actually. He does figure out. Yeah, he knows from the beginning, but he he does a good job of hiding it. Mm-hmm. He makes it seem like he doesn't know things that he actually does know. Mm-hmm. That's made me want to talk about Blanc, which I want to get to in a second. But before we before we talk about Blanc, um, I want to uh, spend just a little bit of time talking about the political subcurrents of the movie. Um, because I think that's a pretty obvious theme that's interesting. Uh, some people have interpreted this movie as an analogy um, about immigrants inheriting the nation. So the house obviously is standing for the nation, and then Marta is an immigrant, and she inherits the house. Um, so is that a plausible interpretation of this movie? Should we go that far? It, it Clearly, it's a movie that encourages us to think about immigrants sympathetically, Um 
there's a scene where they're talking about when Marta's in the room, they're arguing about immigration and they're like, well, see, Marta's, Marta's family did it the right way. She's one of the good ones, but her mother's undocumented. So if they knew that, they wouldn't say that she did it, you know, the right way. But also clearly Marta's mother is a wonderful, sweet person who just wants a good life for her family. Um, so how, how should we think about that message? Um, well, uh, yeah, there's, again, there's two, two, uh, there's an alt-right troll and then there's the SJW Meg and both of them are kind of caricatures and yeah. they're, they're ridiculed to some, but it, there, it does seem to be a kind of, a, a a message at the end about the triumph of the immigrant because this is a multi-generational family that's been around there and they, there's an assumption that they deserve it. And at the end, they all get kicked out. Yeah. And there's a very visual message there where Marta is literally standing on the balcony, like looking down at them. And With the like, coffee cup that says, my coffee, my house, my rules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but there's also, but again, there's also the gravity's rainbow thing where it's like you reference one thing that the character has not read. So it's almost just like everybody's just talking. You yeah. Know? Like everyone's just saying something. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. I don't know. I, I guess I'll play my cards a little bit in saying that I don't think this movie really ought to be interpreted as a, I don't think it's a political message really on some sort of broad scale. It's not saying something about immigration or what immigration policy should be or anything. Um, it's an anecdote, but the anecdote kind of works as an argument in the sense that it does make us think more about individuals, about individual situations and compassion and the self, the self-righteousness of the Thromby family obviously is a bad thing. For Ransom to, at the end of the movie, he accuses Marta of stealing their ancestral home. Mm-hmm. And Blanc starts laughing and he's like, Harlan bought this place in the 80s. Like, <laughs> what do you mean ancestral home? Nothing in America is ancestral. Um, and the, so their pride and their inability to... The, they, the, the fact that they look down on Marta and they look down on immigrants um, is pretty clearly a negative thing. And the fact that her kindness and her compassion and her humility is portrayed positively and that her mother is clearly a good person. Um, I think that there's something... It's a little bit like the danger of a single story, right? That this is a story um, that makes us think about the individual situations that people are in that deserve compassion, even if it's not really an overarching political statement in the sense that it's not proposing a policy. It is helping us to think about the lives of immigrants in a way that's more complicated. (laughs) Um, That Marta, as an immigrant, deserves the inheritance of Harlan because she earned it by her love for him and how, how well she took care of him. Whereas the rest of his family, you know, they may be his family, but they were terrible to him, (laughs) that they were horrible people. And so you don't want them to get the inheritance. So this idea of maybe, Maybe it's better to have a country where the inheritors are the ones who have earned it, not those who are just family members. Let's talk about Benoit Blanc for a second. So earlier we talked about how he calls himself a passive observer of the truth. So he says, I'm a passive observer of the truth. Marta can't lie. So they have that in common, right? They both care about the truth. Um, and that, the fact that she can't lie seems to be one of the main reasons why he trusts her, even though early on he notices the blood on her shoe and he knows that she's involved. He knows from the very beginning, but the fact that she can't lie means that he trusts her, um, along with the fact that she is kind, that she is a, she has a good heart. Um, so what is this movie saying about truth and lies? And is there a time and place to lie? Um, and even more than that, is Blanc really a passive observer of the truth? What does that even mean? Is the correct response to evil just to sit back and watch or wait until the truth eventually drops into your lap? Um, What do we think about that? Well, there's always that question that comes up that I guess in philosophy 101 is like, is it okay to lie? 
if you are hiding Jews from the Nazis, blah, blah, right? Blah, 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 yeah, um, that that always comes up. But I guess the the answer that most people seem to agree is that you should lie. Yeah, and it's like why and are you really lying? And I guess the answer to that is no, not really. You're standing for a higher truth because if you did tell the truth and turn them and turn them in, you're actually. Um, you're actually agreeing or conceding to the narrative of the Nazis who are searching for them, which is predicated on the belief that these are an inferior race that deserve to be uh, right. shipped away to a concentration camp. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting because eventually Marta, Marta, you know, like there's a question of like, does, does the truth set Marta free at mm-hmm. the end? When actually the final, the, the climax of the movie, Marta actually manages to indict Ransom by telling a lie. Yeah. And that's the big climax of, of, of things. Mm-hmm. But is that an instance of her actually taking a higher moral stand and learning how to tell a lie for the sake of a higher truth? Yeah. But maybe, but it's like, and so there's this that there's that always that assumption like it's okay to lie for standing for a higher truth, and yet if we accept that as you know acceptable, then our nature is to just kind of just be okay with lying because we do like lying, yeah. Um, and so it's sort of an attractive thing for us, and so um, the the struggle of telling a lie for a higher truth may be something that hypothetically, a good person would have a problem doing. Right. You know, even though you should do it. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that in that scene, what she manages to do is she manages to delay the response. She still throws up. She just manages to wait for a minute in order to allow Ransom to tell the truth on his own. Because she doesn't... She tells him, you know, Fran... Uh, Fran's okay, she's gonna be fine and then waits for Ransom to you know, spill everything and then she tells the truth so, actually at no point in this movie does she ever like, deceive long term, she tries to deceive them when she thinks that, you know, it's gonna hurt her mother, um but then, you know, when Fran gets hurt, she's like, okay no, this isn't okay people are People are dying. And her solution is to tell the truth. Her solution is always to tell the truth. Um, So I I think it's really important that truth never stops being important to Marta. Just like it never stops being important to Blanc. Even when she's willing to suspend the truth for a time in order to get something else done. Or Mm -hmm. to do do something else more important. Um, So thinking about Blanc as a passive observer... Of the truth. Uh, I think in some ways, that's what most detectives are, but Blanc is even more, maybe, than others. Because he's willing to look like an idiot, right? He, you know, wanders around looking for clues, lets Marta think that she's tricking him the whole time. Um, she actually, at the end, uh, says, you're, you're a lousy detective. And he says, well, you're not much of a murderer. That <laughs> um, <laughs> he, you know, he's... He's so willing to just sit and wait and be relaxed. He is so unconcerned that he's not going to solve the mystery. He's never anxious that the truth isn't going to come out. He thinks that it'll just happen if he if he sits there and watches. Um, is that is that a good way to view the world? Like, is it better to, if a situation is complicated or sticky or you're not sure what's going on, is it better to just sit and watch? And is it true that the truth will just sort itself out that uh, the truth will reveal itself in the end there is always something interesting about movies where the character where 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 um the character who's quietly sitting in the corner mm-hmm. is like the last person to speak is always the most interesting person and they're most interesting because they were listening to everyone mm-hmm. and yeah people do tell say a lot about themselves if they are the first to speak um yeah so yeah, I think that there's definitely a lot, a lot, a lot to be said for that. 
when you are in that kind of volatile situation that people will eventually kind of give themselves away. Um, part, uh, partly because, uh, you know, uh, trying to control the situation or advance your own narrative when there are so many other competing narratives, in other words, like very selfish people who want to advance their narratives, um, is a situation where you can't possibly win. So yeah. everyone is going to eventually reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this thing is... And so maybe, you know, there is that, like, there is that kind of impetus, I guess, from Christians sometimes to go at war with the culture um, because we need to stand for the good, yada, yada. Which is, I mean, like, yeah, we need to stand for the good. But also, a lot of the times... Uh, as Lewis would have put put it, they have pulled down deep heaven on their heads. Yeah, and they they will the he who digs a pit will fall into it, and the yeah. evil man will bring about his own death. So there is yep. that kind of um, maybe a Christian stance of saying, uh, "Let vengeance is mine; I will repay." And I'm right. I'm gonna let it. I'm just gonna let it happen. Yeah, and that way I I'm actually my hands are clean, you know, because I didn't participate in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, um, I think it's important, too, that Harlan Thrombey only dies because he doesn't wait, because he's not a passive observer of the truth. Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That he, if he had just waited, if he had let Marta do what she wanted to do, then she would have been okay. He would have been okay. Uh Ransom would have been implicated probably because it would have been revealed that someone switched the medications and then everybody finds out what Ransom did. Um, A lot of this problem would have been alleviated if Harlan had just waited and watched for the truth. Um, And he's a he's a murder mystery writer. Right. So he he's used to thinking the way that criminals think he's used to getting inside the head of evil and he thinks that he can head off the problems (laughs) by getting inside one of his own novels um, and being clever about it. But if he had just waited and trusted that the truth is bigger than lies and that good ultimately triumphs over evil, then he would have been okay. And there's also the question in this movie of what makes a good person? Um, Because based on our first impressions, there are three people whom at at the outset we think are good people, First is Marta, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Harlan is another. But also, we kind of think Ransom is a good person, too. Yeah. I mean, we don't necessarily assume he's a good person, but we like him. We and see re- Chris Evans in a sweater, and yeah. we go, this guy has to be fine. Well, we instantly like him when we introduce him, because we've learned the whole family is terrible. Yeah. And they don't like Ransom, so it's like, okay, well, obviously, Ransom can't be that bad, because they don't like him. Yep. And then he goes in and just writes everybody off, and yep. curses them all out and everyone's mad and he's funny because he does that yeah and so part of it is like we like him or we empathize with him because he's pointing his finger at people we don't like yeah um and then at the same time we also think harlan's a good person uh because harlan uh, uh, ostensibly is on marta's side and ostensibly is sacrificing himself to save her life um well two things that kind of uh, throw a wrench in both of those preconceptions about uh, these characters is first Ransom is actually the villain and Harlem is just like stupidly wrong in his cleverness. Yep. And maybe part of it is that he wants to make is him trying to make everything about himself. Yeah. Um, and so really the and so I guess what that's actually challenging is that like the way the metric that we use to judge what makes a good person is actually not a good metric um, because we're using cleverness Mm -hmm. in order to decide that. Um, And we're using, you know, this whole kind of like very limited landscape of ideas in order to make our judgment about things. And those, those judgments can be wrong because there's always more information. Right. And it seems that it seems that like Ryan Johnson might be saying that actually there's literally no way that we can trust anyone unless that person just hated lying so much that they threw up. Right. Like he reduces 
trust down to something that is just fundamentally visceral. That's a mechanic. Right. And that is very that, that's very congenial to the sensibilities of audiences today who are very doubtful mm-hmm. and very skeptical from the beginning. Because we're used to unreliable narrators. We're used to unreliable narrators. So it's like, how are you going to convince a very skeptical audience that this is a reliable narrator? It's like, well, they throw up. Yep. <laughs> they literally can't. The body doesn't lie. Yeah. Um... Yeah, which actually leads us, I think, into the question of what the movie is saying about justice on a bigger scale. Not just truth and lies, but, like, good and evil and what it means for evil to be um, convicted or evil to be punished in some way. Um, So, Blanc tells Marta at the end of the movie, I want you to know that you didn't win the game by playing it Harlan's way. You won it by playing it your way because you have a good heart. And he says something really similar earlier when he originally asks her to help him solve the mystery and, like, be a Watson. Uh, He tells her that it's... uh, He says... um, She says, why me? And he says, I trust your kind heart. So he sees something in her, partially the fact that she can't lie, but then also the fact that she's kind, that she's a good nurse. And he trusts that. Um, So throughout the movie, Marta's kindness and sincerity obviously are contrasted pretty heavily with the Thromby family's cruelty and their duplicity, which is ultimately why she deserves to inherit the house. Um, And that kindness is ultimately rewarded. So given that fact, what, what is the movie saying about justice? Because it sort of seems like it's just a karmic view of justice. It's if you are a good person, then ultimately things will work out for you materially. You'll inherit the house if you're a good person. And if you're a bad person, you won't inherit the house. Um, is it more complicated than that, do you think? Or is it that straightforward? Can you rephrase the question? Like yeah. A bit? Like, this se- this movie seems like it's pretty firmly in the murder mystery uh, camp in the sense that um, good is rewarded and evil is punished. Uh, like, all the thrombies, even the ones who didn't commit murder... <laughs> None of them get any money. None of them inherit the house. Um, whereas Marta, who is kind and who is a good person, she's the one who gets all of it. She's the one who inherits the house. Um, is the like? Is this movie just that straightforward? Is it just saying if you're a good person, you will be rewarded materially, and if you're a bad person, you'll get what's coming to you? Well, I think that the interesting thing about Marta, which actually seems to be, there seems to be a message there that this is Marta's heroic act. Mm -hmm. That her heroic act was actually lying. Yeah. In in spite of her, like, absolute, her absolute antipathy towards lying. And so, what... We could say what the movie is not saying, although, you know, it's kind of misleading, although this is what it seems to be saying, is that the way to be a good person is to be the sort of person where you can't be a bad person. Mm -hmm. And obviously we know that's not true. A person who can't be bad doesn't make you good. Mm -hmm. It just makes you weak. But that's like... Uh, maybe that's sort of a concession to our sensibilities now yeah. because that's that is what we kind of assume to be our our idea of someone who could be bad but isn't we just don't have the faith we're too skeptical to believe that such a person person could exist mm-hmm. um but we accept marta is good specifically because she can't lie mm-hmm. um but i think the real that and so it's misleading because they, they we think that's why we like her we yeah. think that's why so it's misleading because we think that's why we like her. We think that's why we think that she's good. But really, in the end, what ultimately makes her good is, one, she loves her mother mm-hmm. and her family. And two, she actually exercises freedom by acting against her nature Yeah. to not lie yep. for the sake of truth. That she struggles and she's not passive and she's not just the, the the unerring machine that gets at gets at truth. Yeah. Um and that and that she struggles. But yeah. her ultimate goal is truth, not just not lying. Right. Right. And I think there's something in us that loves when justice is done in a story. Um which is a weird paradox, right? Because 
I mean, we see that tension in the Bible, too, where in the Bible, um, all the time, like in the Psalms, it talks about, like you were saying earlier, like, uh, falling into the pit that you dug, (laughs) um, and how the righteous are rewarded and the wicked ultimately get what's coming to them. And there's something in us that goes, yeah, that's good. And I think that's why we like murder mysteries is we like when the, when the, the crimes that are committed are found out. We like when evil is revealed. Uh, Ryan Johnson has actually said that he appreciates specifically the moral clarity of the murder mystery genre, which I think basically what he's saying is he appreciates the fact that it is full of justice. But the tension there is when we think about our relationship with God, we might be more like the thrombies, right? We get an inheritance that we didn't earn, that we didn't deserve, which is not like the thrombies, right? The thrombies get what's coming to them. And I think so there's something that rings true when we watch a movie like this because we go, yeah, that's probably what I deserve, right? I'm probably like a thrombie. I don't deserve the inheritance that I get, but I get it anyway. And yet it's entertaining to watch, the thrombies get their comeuppance. So, I don't know. That's definitely a, a tension there, I think. Yeah, there definitely is kind of like, I mean, in Christianity, there is a sort of a constant death of self that has to be a denial of self. You have to deny yourself. Yeah. Um, and also in Paul, this constant reminder that, y- you know, you're a, a, you're adopted yep. into the family. Yes. Um, you are grafted in. And also you shouldn't, think you shouldn't um some people who were native were cut off yeah and some people who were foreigners were grafted in Mm. but okay so that's that's one story but also paul takes it even further and says uh hold on a second don't if you were grafted in do not get arrogant about the about the native people who were cut off Because if he cut them off, he could cut you off, too. So there's still that uncertainty, even for the immigrant. Yeah. Even for the for Martin, who was grafted in. Yeah. Which is like if you do deviate from the truth and from from righteousness, Mm -hmm. then you're probably you're not going to be protected either. Yeah. Um, But I think that that's, I guess, an additional thought. I don't know if that's actually a message in the, in the movie itself. Yeah. Well, no, I like, I like that connection. I like the idea that because, um, you know, St. Paul talks about being children of Abraham by faith. Um, and I think you could say that Marta is a, is a child of Abraham by faith. She's a thromby because of her, her care of the way that she, um, has cared for Harlan, not because she is, um, actually his child and there are all these actual children who didn't care for him they didn't uh help him and so they are you know they're not children of abraham anymore they're cut off so i actually think that's a really good connection yeah and that also there's that parable of jesus where uh the the father asks two sons to go do some work for him yeah right and the son who says i will do it and doesn't do it is is um condemned and then the son who says, I won't do it, and then goes and does it, is praised. And the message there being that what actually makes you a son is not the, the, your, your, your actual blood, but the way you act. You know, yeah. If you act like a son or a daughter, then you are one. That's really good. That's perfect. I have, okay, so there's one, there's one more question I have. There's one more thing I want to talk about before we get to the end here, which is... Uh, towards the beginning of the movie, Harlan says about Ransom, uh, there's so much of me in that kid, confident, stupid, I don't know, protected, playing life like a game without consequence until you can't tell the difference between a stage prop and a real knife. And then, of course, in the end, Ransom tries to kill Marta with a stage prop because he doesn't know the difference, which is what Harlan said of him in the beginning. So besides just being really nice, uh, a really nice narrative bookend for the movie um what in this movie what does it mean to tell the difference between a stage prop and a real knife um do we see the good characters in this movie so characters like Blanc or like Marta um do those characters know the difference between a stage prop and a real knife and how do we see that in this movie Mm -hmm. 
Well, I guess the question beneath the question is, you know, how do we tell the difference between a false narrative and the truth? And yeah. like, is there a truth? I guess there is a belief that there is some truth to be discovered, but it we're also just hopelessly unable to determine that. Right. Um, and so how do you determine it? And Ryan Johnson throws something at us um, at the beginning in, in the, the, the surface level interpretation is that be so disgusted that your body just can't take it. Yeah. Um, and there's something about that that is just like reducibly, irreducibly trustworthy. Right. Um, but then it, he seems like to be saying something more beyond that. But I think that there is also truth in that at the same time. Um, the fact that the way that you can tell the difference between a stage prop and a real life is something intuitive. It's not rational. It's a feeling. It's like, no, not that. I don't like, I don't like it. Um, there's something like an, almost an emotional response to untruth, right. which makes a certain, makes person, a person reliable. And I guess, why do we believe that? I think we believe that because we know deep down inside we're deeply emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. We're not rational creatures. And we will ultimately follow the thing that we desire. Um, so Hank Green, John Green's brother, had mm -hmm. a YouTube video of, about how to change what you desire or how to change what you want. Mm. Um, and it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting uh, um, piece and it's a really interesting question, how to change what you want. Because I think that that's really, ultimately, the thing that we, we struggle with. We know what's good. Mm -hmm. We may know what's true. But the problem is, is that we don't want it. And maybe that's ultimately the ultimate step towards redemption. Why does Marta throw up when she, when she lies? There's no real explanation yeah. in the movie, but there is kind of a feeling, a feeling that you get that, you know, there is actually maybe a conscious choice that, you know, she just really likes the truth that yeah. she, she has a real, uh, desire for the truth. Yeah. Um, and there is, and is that like, is that a biblical idea? I mean, like Paul does say that we need to be slaves to righteousness, mm -hmm. which from the outset, people might have kind of a, a negative response to that. But there is that idea that everything that you do ultimately is an act of obedience. Like Wallace says, everything right. you do is going to be an act of worship. Everything you do is ultimately going to be an a dicheri, mm -hmm. a religious devotion, an addiction. Um, you're going to be addicted to something, and either you're going to be addicted to, to the lies, or you're going to be addicted to the truth. Yeah. And so, to redeem yourself is a cultivation of becoming addicted to the truth. Right. Well, Marta shows that, actually, I just realized. She is able to tell the difference between the morphine and the medication without By even into instinct. She knows the difference between a stage prop and the real thing without even thinking about it. She doesn't have to, she doesn't think about that rationally. She just instinctively, she knows because, and what, what uh, Blanc says is that it's because she's done it so many times. She has seen the truth and, uh, taking care of this person so many times that she just knows. Right. It has to be habit. And that's exactly what Hank Green says. You know, it's like, okay, if I'm in a community of people that really like this one thing that I know is not superficial, I don't, I can't really escape from that because it just becomes a habit of things. Mm -hmm. But he says, if I spend time with my family, for instance, I'm telling a story about the value of those things. Yeah. And so really the only way you can change what you want is the habit of constantly doing changing what you want in small ways every day. Well, because Ransom doesn't have that habit, yeah. right? Ransom is so used to lying. He's so used to lying to everyone else. He's used to lying to himself that in the end, when he really needs to know the difference between a truth and a lie, when he needs to know the difference between a stage prop and a real thing, he hasn't cultivated that habit um, and he can't do it, even and, though it would save his life. And that's like, yeah, and then that's another great example of the way in which evil is inherently con self-contradictory and so there is kind of a pragmatic reason to be a good person uh because 
to be evil is ultimately to shoot yourself in the foot by definition. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by SOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com, check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast, or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Docapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing This is Water, a video essay based on David Foster Wallace's 2005 commencement address. Until then, friends, we just want you to know that we really appreciate all your emails and how much you all just you write to us all the time. And <coughs> oh, sorry. I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide. And maybe it's true that nothing is new. I can see so much more